Episode number 96 of the Christian Feminist Podcast, our New Year's All Recommendations Extravaganza. This episode came about because we posted a poll on our Facebook page uh, and asked all of our listeners to vote on some things they would like us to recommend to them, some categories like books, TV, other podcasts, uh, and the two winning categories from that poll were historical Christian feminists and podcasts. So that's where we're going to focus most of our discussion today. But before we do that, let's introduce ourselves. Uh, I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer, and with me today are fellow regular panelists, Christina Bieber-Lake and Leah Henning. Hi, Christina and Leah. Hello. Hello. Uh, thanks for being with me today. Um, I'm sure most everyone knows who we are, but just in case they don't, uh, why don't you start with the more in-depth introductions, Christina? Sure. I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. teach English at Wheaton College, and um, I live here in Wheaton, Illinois, with my husband, who is an Anglican priest, and our son, who is just coming back from a bowling tournament. And... Uh, yeah, I'm happy to be here today. Thanks, Christina. Leah, tell us about you. Hi, my name is Leah Henning. I have my master's degree in uh, European history, specifically early modern European history. Um, and I currently work with Ecolab here in Minnesota, and I live in St. Paul. Thanks, Leah. Uh, as I said, I'm Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I also live in Minnesota, in Minnetonka, with my husband, Michael, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. Uh, I work in audience development for public radio. Uh, one of the podcasts I'm going to recommend is Shameless Plug, produced by the company I work for. So uh, I'm being a company woman today. <laughs> I, I have my... Uh, master's in Renaissance Literature from the University of Georgia and my doctorate in Renaissance Literature and Gender and Sexuality Studies from Florida State University. Um, yeah, and that's pretty much me. Oh, there's also a cat sleeping on top of me right now, so if he wakes up and starts moving, uh, there might be cat noises. So... Let's get started with these recommendation categories. Uh, the way this is going to work is, as I said, uh, historical Christian feminists and podcasts won our poll. So the three of us are each going to talk about two of those things. Uh, and because listener Megan Floyd could not make up her mind and asked us to, this is a direct quote, recommend her all the things, uh, we decided to 
use a third category where we could uh, recommend basically miscellaneous uh, stuff in various other categories that didn't win. So uh, we hear you, Megan Floyd, the third category is for you. But we're going to start with historical Christian feminists. Um, what do you think, guys? Should we do both of our people at once, or do you want to go around twice and do one apiece? How do you think we should do this? Go around and do one each. All right, sounds good. Uh, so my first pick is St. Teresa of Avila, who was a Carmelite nun in the early 16th century. Um, and if you haven't read her, I would really recommend it. She is most famous for two books, uh, an autobiography and uh, her really important work, The Interior Castle, which is uh, one of the most famous texts of the Spanish Renaissance and is about um, four levels of religious devotion that your soul can go through as you get closer to God. Um, one of the things that I think is really cool about St. Teresa is that she was a really important part of the Counter-Reformation in Spain. Uh, she was a cloistered Carmelite, as I said earlier, and she really saw that a lot of the nuns and priests around her were getting caught up in kind of social mobility in Spain, that they had all these fancy rich uh, visitors to their cloister and that they were being distracted um, by all these worldly people coming in and out. So she said, that's not what the cloister is for. We're here because we want to withdraw from the worldly environment and focus on spiritual development. So uh, the reason that she uh, writes the two books that she writes is to instruct the people around her to um, to do what they're there for and to focus on the development of the soul. Uh, so that's my first historical Christian feminist recommendation, St. Teresa of Avila. Uh, have you guys read her or uh, or know anything about her? Yes, and it meshes nicely with my recommendation, actually, so we can kind of maybe talk together, you know, because I'm recommending Julian of Norwich and the showings and revelations of, of Julian of Norwich. And so do you want to just sort of talk about those together? Sure, yeah, I um, I actually almost uh, put Julian on my list. I know we've mentioned her on several episodes of this show, so that's uh, that's great. Tell us why you uh, wanted to recommend her. Well, I finally had a chance to sit down and read the showings um, in a more contemporary translation, and then I've taught them a couple of times. And every time I, I read them, I'm just stunned by how... Uh, medieval woman, you know, anchoress, cloistered woman, uh, could be so feminist <laughs> in a way that I just wasn't expecting. And so it's some people might think it's anachronistic to call her a feminist, just as you might say with, um, you know, Teresa of Avila. But it, it's, it's a fitting statement because, be, because she's definitely pro-women and she's saying things theologically that I have not seen anywhere, uh, you know, Julian of Norwich in the showings is making the argument that Jesus needs to be considered 
in a feminine way and, and even go so far as to talk about all the different feminine characteristics of Jesus. And I never read or seen anything like that before. And so I'm strongly recommending that people today who are Christian women read her because they will be stunned to discover that this is this uh, is not some new fancy theological idea, right? That this is a very ancient one. Um, and then also as a poet, as not that I'm so much a poet myself, although I'd like to be, but as a literature scholar, the <clears throat> the writings lend themselves to so much thought about the imagination and the power of the imagination because she's a mystic, just like Teresa. And because she has that very famous passage where she talks about um, God holding everything in his palm like a hazelnut and how he loves everything and calls and says it is all well with him. And she's the one that we get those lines all as well. All manner of things shall be well. And poets are naturally drawn because that's a very strong image for one thing, but also because, and I think this is very much the case, artists and poets know that the, <laughs> their work comes out of the value placed on creation. And when Julian is taking this image of God saying that God, you know, God holds universe in his hand like a hazelnut is it's it's a care it's value it's beauty it's all of those things and so a poet like denise levertov has a whole bunch of different poems dedicated to julian precisely because of that and i just think that's fascinating yeah her her work is is really wonderful and i i always loved uh teaching her as well because i got to have lots of great conversations with students about um, what Julian says about sort of Christ as, as mother and nurturer, um, and, and the idea that, you know, we do think of that as, as some sort of anachronistic, some people would say, perversion of scripture, but the fact that it is, um, centuries old, uh, certainly, I think, um, makes, makes us question why those kinds of attributes have been uh, have been silenced historically and what that's about. That's right, because we tend to think that the, that the church has always been patriarchal in the same way, right? But that's to not understand medieval Christianity. There was just a different approach to the questions of the feminine characteristics of Jesus. And a lot of that has been lost, right? Um, and probably from the thought, the fault of the Enlightenment and its kind of rigid separation, right, of, of rationality and passion and all of these things that we've grown to come accustomed with the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thinking and the way the Enlightenment messed up Christianity. So to recover Christianity is also to recover medieval feminist kind of views of the female body and feminization, if you will, of Jesus. They weren't afraid of that. Yeah, and um, I embodiment, I think, gets us back to St. Teresa a little bit, who um, talks a great deal about um, bodies and um, and the relationship between our physical body and our need for grace. Um, she, not that we had this language back then, but she um, was a, a sufferer of chronic pain and she had terrible headaches. Um, she writes a lot about her debilitating 
headaches and how um, her physical weakness caused her to draw spiritual strength from Christ because she knew that her body uh, couldn't be relied on to to give her strength so she had to draw strength from from a higher plane um, she's also a patron saint of um, people with with physical ailments which is why I started reading her uh, a number of years ago uh, so I, I think that's so interesting that in in distancing ourselves from um, a, a lot of the the mystics of the past of the faith, we've kind of lost um, some very complex spaces where complex types of people are allowed to exist. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. Uh, Leah, do you have anything to say about uh, the two people we've mentioned so far, or would you like to uh, go ahead with your first historical Christian feminist? I mean, I love both of your people, but I don't really have anything in addition to add to what you both have said. Um, I, I do love the medieval characteristic of Christ being more feminine. Um, and it's kind of something that I think is lost from church history once we move past the medieval age. Um, that being said, both of my choices are a bit more modern. <laughs> um, I think uh, my first person is going to be Coretta Scott King. Um, you might recognize Coretta's name because uh, here in the U.S. we spend quite a bit of time talking about her husband, Martin Luther King Jr. Um, but like with most things in history, if we pay attention to the women behind the men, you'll usually find out some really amazing things and some amazing people. Um, so she was more than just the wife of Martin Luther King Jr., of course. She, Coretta was an activist, an author, and a civil rights leader in her own right. Um, so she was born in 1927. Um, she grew up as an intelligent and very musically talented young woman uh, who was really a force to be reckoned with. Uh, I believe she started working to help her family's income at the age of 10, even as she continued her education and pursued her dreams of becoming a classical singer. Um, she met Martin while she was attending the New England Conservatory of Music, and they were married in 1953. But when he was appointed as a Baptist minister, Coretta did give up her dream of becoming a professional classical singer and instead focused her attention on their family and supporting the civil rights movement. Um, and of course, after he was assassinated in 1968, she did take on quite a bit of the primary leadership of the civil rights movement, kind of stepping into his place. And she did become a prominent figure in the growing women's movement at the time. Um, later on in her life, she also became involved in LGBT plus rights. Uh, she would speak for world peace. Really, she has this amazing list of noble causes that her name is attached to. Um, she did pass away uh, 
fairly recently in 2006 from the after effects of a stroke as well as advanced level ovarian cancer. Um, so what I just said was just a brief biography of her, of course, and it she's done so much that is still affecting us today that it's pretty impossible to just focus in on one thing. Um, so I will just throw this out there for the listeners that her autobiography was published posthumously in 2017, and it's titled Coretta, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. I think uh, it's it's so common to hear stories like this of um, women married to famous men who are kind of forced to to give up their public identities in a certain way. Um, and I was I was really struck by the things you said about her that I didn't know, um, because growing up in in Georgia um, as a kid when you uh when you learn black history month lessons I mean, you hear about the kings both of them um a, a lot uh, and i've i've been to uh i've been to their uh library and museum and you know i i thought i was a person who who knew a fair amount um so i i think that really does speak to um the the kind of again as we said uh previously the historical erasure of women that is just way too way too common oh definitely um it's always forgive me Coretta's story particularly strikes me just because we do hear so much about her husband specifically and it's not necessarily that she herself has been erased either because she is always there. Like you see pictures of him and she's right there in the background. But for whatever reason, um, all of our focus is intent upon him historically. So when given the opportunity to look at these Christian feminists, I definitely wanted to give her back some of the limelight that she kind of shown back onto her husband. Sure. Absolutely. And she was, you know, instrumental in a lot of the things that he's known for. She also helped form the SCLC. Um, she and a lot of other women, um, like the, those events, those consciousness raising events and sit-ins wouldn't have run, like wouldn't have been, um, successful if they hadn't been taking down people's names and feeding everyone and, you know, doing all this uh, behind-the-scenes, often female-gendered work that makes uh, that makes things go. So um, That's true, and it's such an important point that we should be making, of course, that just because a woman doesn't have a public role, isn't out there speaking, isn't out there writing, doesn't mean that she's not a huge part of whatever, you know, movement is going on, right? Um, and it, it's interesting to me that the people that we've named so far, um, before we got to Leah's recommendation, you know, these two mystics, they live these cloistered existences that set them free from the typical responsibilities that women have, right? And gave them, in a way, 
more of a platform than most women would be, have been able to have. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That um, that for so much of history, empowered female space was also segregated space. Exactly. Because it had to be. Yeah. Um, oh, I guess I should also say, since I, I talked about this uh, off the air and uh, and you guys thought it was interesting, uh, I actually got to meet Coretta Scott King when I was younger. I was about nine or ten, um, and I was performing in a Black History Month celebration in a church in my town. Um, several kids from our school got picked to sing some songs, and I was one of them. Uh, and Mrs. King came up to us and shook all our hands afterward, uh, and she uh, told me that I had a pretty voice. Uh, I had no idea, Leah, until you said that she was actually a trained singer, so that, uh, that compliment meant a lot to me before I knew that, but it means even more now. Um, that's It's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, it was one of her favorite things, and actually, if you look at some of the events that she was involved in planning, you'll notice that there is usually a song involved. I'm sure that's why we were asked to sing, um, though I certainly didn't know that at the time. Well, that's even neater than I thought it was. Uh, are we ready for the next round of historical sure. people? Okay. So I would like to apologize in advance. Uh, Christina should probably be doing this person instead of me. Uh, because she is an expert, but I didn't know well, who Christina's else lazy to pick. You, <laughs> you jumped in there. <laughs> well, I guess I, I did write it down first. Um, so my second historical Christian feminist is Flannery O'Connor. Um, she was born in, is it, I had it in front of me, where to go? 1925? 1925. Does that sound right? Okay. Uh, and the reason that I'm talking about Flannery O'Connor, one reason, is because uh, she was forced on me when I was very young, um, and so I decided I didn't like her because all my teachers told me I should read her. Um, I think because... <laughs> I know, that's terrible, right? And also kind of a very Flannery O'Connor character reaction to have. Yes, uh, it is. So, uh, I guess my first exposure to her was um, in a an English class in about 5th or 6th grade. Um, we all read A Good Man is Hard to Find. Um, and I thought the story was great, but I remember my teacher singling me out um, in discussion and saying like as a girl with a disability how do you feel about Flannery O'Connor and I oh, no. hated it just made me feel really terrible and like everybody was staring at me so that was when I decided I didn't like Flannery O'Connor well and future teachers or current teachers out there should know don't ever single anybody out yeah, that's a that's a not great way to to make your students relate to the material. Um, but as I got older, um, I I realized that I actually really did relate a lot to her experiences and her characters. Um, and as I started teaching her work and reading her letters, um, 
it really started to inform um, my own thinking about um, voice and character and definitely my own um, developing theology of disability as I as I grew into adulthood. Uh, so O'Connor herself um, had lupus, uh, which caused one of her legs to be shorter than the other, and she got around with crutches. Um, she wrote very... Which she called her flying buttresses. Yes, I love that. Uh, she wrote very thoughtfully about um, her own disability and embodiment and its connection to her theology. Um, but she also, and and what I think makes me love her the most she had this very kind of human uh sometimes very sarcastic attitude about the way she moved around in the world and she didn't want anybody's uh she didn't want anybody's pity especially so i'm gonna read one of my favorite paragraphs from her letters which i think really sums up uh what i love about her attitude uh this is from a letter to a friend Um, about an experience she has in an Atlanta department store. I've decided I must be a pretty pathetic sight with these crutches. I was in Atlanta the other day in Davison's. An old lady got on the elevator behind me with a moist, gleaming eye and said in a loud voice, Bless you, darling, and I gave her a weakly, lethal look, whereupon, greatly encouraged, she grabbed my arm and whispered very loudly in my ear, Remember what they said to John at the gate, darling. It was not my floor, but I got off, and I suppose the old lady was astonished at how quick I could get away on crutches. I have a one-legged friend, and I asked her what they said to John at the gate. She said she reckoned they said, the lame shall enter first. This may be because the lame will be able to knock everybody else aside with their crutches. <laughs> and, like, that's so great. That's hilarious, and I love it, and I've absolutely had experiences in public where people have told me that they think I'm brave or inspirational or whatever basically just for existing and that's such a stupid awful patronizing thing to say to people um, in addition to being incredibly ableist so um, I I draw a lot of strength and hope uh, from the fact that O'Connor had those kinds of experiences too and she was able to laugh uh, about them and laugh at herself um, while also being a person of um, really deep intelligence and faith. Uh, So now that I have emoted about Flannery O'Connor, maybe Christina would like to say uh, better, more scholarly things than I did. Well, you promised that we will do an eventual future episode of Flannery O'Connor. So, you know, I don't want to, I mean, I could just carry on and I'm not going to do that. But uh, one of the things that I want to say now is about her sense of humor. It's so... um, sanctifying i mean not to use a word that sounds sanctimonious but it it is in the way exactly that you described victoria because there are things that you have to be able to laugh at in order to to uh, move beyond them right and she understood that and ralph wood who i travel around a lot with because we get invited to the same events has always said that if you read her letters and you keep them by your bedside you know and you read them every night they'll eventually save your soul kind of a thing. And it's because they're so funny, but they're also so um, 
so moving, so penetrating in their wisdom and wit and wisdom together. And so if you guys have not read her work, of course, I would encourage you to read it, but certainly to read her letters as well, because that's where a lot of that really great insight that Victoria is talking about comes from, and they will change you. And then, of course, you have the publication of her prayer journal that just came out recently. And uh, Victoria, I assume you've read that or taken a look at it. I haven't. I know that it's out and I would love to read it. Um, it's it's on my very long list of things I would like to read. Yeah, it's not very long. And it just gives you a really good glimpse into the heart of this woman who wanted to serve God with her talent. And so the thing that also stands out to me in this conversation is that once again, we have a woman who, because she was a Catholic um, and disabled and not particularly interested in men, decided pretty early on that she wasn't going to, you know, be married and have children. And she viewed that as like a, like she, it was a choice that she made about not wanting to have children from my understanding um, because of her, of her disability, but that that enabled her to pour all of that energy into her vocation, right? It's not to say that she wouldn't have wanted to be with a man. And there's some evidence that she fell in love with a couple of different men but this was just something that she was giving to her vocation. And as a result, we have this, and she died so young, but we have this amazing, resilient, small, but mighty body of work that is absolutely incredible, right? And we wouldn't have had that if she had not been born the way that she was born. And I just find that inspiring because to be a feminist, in my mind, is to be the kind of woman that God made you to be and give the gifts that you have to give Unapologetic, unapologetic. Somebody just say that for me. Unapologetically. Thank you. And that that attitude, that unapologetic attitude, is I think what I love the most about the way O'Connor looks at the world. I I think you. I don't yes. know that I could say it better than you can in terms of she was the person that she thought God made her to be, and yes. I think we as women, um, and me as a disabled woman certainly, but um, I think we as women in general spend a lot of time apologizing for everything, for what we do and what we don't do and for taking yes. up too much space and for being the wrong kind of woman. Like, I think we just spend so much time apologizing and that's not okay. Uh, and O'Connor reminds me of that a lot. Yeah. And that's actually an excellent transition to my other choice, if that's okay. Or do we want to move to, to Leah? next um if if that's a good segue for you why don't you go ahead yeah. and take it yeah because this unapologetic business is really what um julian and norwich and my other person that i chose which is angelina grimke have in common and now angelina is from the 19th century abolitionist and feminist but she's not exactly a christian i mean she's quaker um so i'm i'm using her as a kind of a fill-in for a number of different women leaders of the 19th century who you could slot in that place, who were strong women leaders, feminists, and very strongly Christian. And so just give me a little leeway there. But the she came also from privilege. And it's so interesting because so far the people we've looked at have come from privilege, except for maybe Coretta, right? Um, Leah, I don't know, was she born into any kind of... A... Um, from what I can tell, it was they weren't an affluent family okay. um, because she did have to help support her family I would say in 
most likely okay. not. <laughs> okay. So Flannery, Flannery O'Connor wasn't born into wealth either, but you know, a certain amount of stability where you didn't have to, um, you know, she lived with her mother on the dairy farm and, and didn't have to, to work to keep her, you know, family together, that kind of thing. Whereas Grimke really came from elite slaveholding family. And her mother was elite uh, Episcopalian, uh, ran in those circles. Her father never stopped owning slaves. And, and she was born in, get this, y'all, Charleston, South Carolina, and still came from that home to become a major leader in abolitionism and in feminism and in the combining of those two. Think about the leap that that involves, coming out of your culture and moving, you know, into an ideological position that your parents cannot understand and will not accept. And she, like many other 19th century leaders in feminism and abolitionism, ended up getting less credit than her abolitionist husband, who in this case was Theodore Dwight Weld, who wrote Slavery As It Is. He's credited for writing Slavery As It Is, but really probably they worked on it together. I mean, I learned a lot about this when we did the podcast with Helen Huntley Kelly and talked about her uh, books where she was trying to unearth some of the lost research about faith and feminism in the early 19th century movements and how their feminism was a product of their faith in Jesus. And so, um, and we tend to, because we're so embarrassed as contemporary secular thinkers, to push that out of the categories for discussion. But to be an, ab an activist, an abolitionist activist and a feminist in the 19th century probably meant that you were coming from a position of faith. Yeah, that's, that's definitely true um, of the social movements of that time. Um, I'm really struck by what you said about the background she comes from and, um, and, and how many people in her life she must have alienated by taking that stand. That's, uh, that's really Which is incredible. remarkable. Yeah, for a woman from the South, think about what you know about Southern elite society. And there's just not a lot of, of room for women to move around and, and become something different and do something different. The easiest thing to do is just to conform, right, to the expectations of what you see around you. I went to Cotillion, man. I know all about the South and gender oh, wow. roles and what you're expected to do. Wow. I'm also struck that it's not even just her isolating everyone else, but she's in a way also isolating herself by making those choices. Mm -hmm. So just having the strength of character to do that, to turn the back on your family, your, your background, everything that you've grown up surrounded by. Yeah. And it strikes me too, that her initial rejection of the Episcopal faith of her family really was a, re a rejection of the two facile um, allowances for that within the Episcopalianism for slavery. And she turned to Quakerism. I think the argument could be made because they were making a bigger stand against slavery. And uh, she wanted, she was drawn to that. So that's also a very interesting move to be able to reject, you know, uh, a particular church and move into another one because you feel like it's more suitable to the activism that you're committed to. Um, mm -hmm. But I really do recommend those books by 
by Helen Huntley Kelly because they're um, they foreground. And in fact, one of them even puts in red letter, like red letter edition of the Bible, the words of these like uh, Angelina Grimkay and her sister and some of the other women of the 19th century in red so that you can go and see what they wrote. And it's just filled with love of God, desire for justice for both women and African-Americans, and that there was also a lot of working together with black women. There were interracial, you know, what we would call intersectionality taking place in the 19th century that eventually got kicked out almost because it was too much to handle. There was too much change to handle at once. So they had to isolate the sort of slave issue from the women's issue, unfortunately. But these early these early women did not want to do that. They did not want to isolate uh, those issues. They wanted them to happen at the same time. So it's just a fascinating history, and she provides she does a good job of providing that. We'll uh, we'll make sure to link to her books um, and and perhaps to the podcast discussion we did with her uh, in the show notes of this episode as well. Yeah, that's that's a good idea. Okay, Leah, uh, looks like it's your turn to uh, wrap up this category of recommendations. Certainly. Uh, I'm actually going to make a connection to Christina's last recommendation because my next choice, her name is Susan LaFleche. She is also not necessarily Christian. She's definitely Christian adjacent. She had has Christian um, education in her history, but the church that she was most attached to was that of, and forgive me if I mispronounce it, the peyote or peyoteism, which is the combination of Native American beliefs and Christianity. Um. Susan LaFleche is someone that I'm still currently learning about because I stumbled across her name accidentally. Um, She is actually recognized as the first Native American female doctor, if not the first Native American doctor, period. Um, She was born in the summer of 1865, which is really just a few years after Elizabeth Blackwell became the first female doctor in the U.S., um, to the chief of the Omaha tribe. So she really grew up in a time when the idea of a female doctor was still pretty frowned upon, uh, let alone a a female Native American doctor. Um, She was highly encouraged by her parents from a very early age to pursue an education, and so she did go east uh, and eventually was inspired by a scene that she saw as a young girl where her local white doctor had refused to provide care to a dying woman to pursue her medical license. Um, she did graduate top of her class in 1889 uh, from the Women's Medical College of Pennsylvania. And then she returned home to Nebraska, where over the course of her time as a doctor, she would end up serving more than 1,300 people, both white and non-white, over a 450-square-mile area. 
Um, she did get married and she had two sons. Um, and even though it was not the custom of the time for women to continue working once married, she did remain the main provider of their family. Um, a big thing that a big trend in her story is that she cared so deeply for her community. Um, her husband turned out to be an alcoholic. She would join the fight for prohibition on reservations. Um, she saw a need for health care for her community. And one of her main life goals was to have a hospital built on the reservation, which she saw fulfilled two years before she died. Um, she was constantly fighting for public health, sanitation, prohibition, and just Native American rights. Uh, and she ended up dying of bone cancer in September 1915 after fighting for all of these benefits for her community and for her family. Um, there's a decent biography that I'm working my way through. It's called A Warrior of the People by Joe Starita um, that gives a little bit of information, but really it's kind of difficult to find a good book about her. She's one of these women who, thankfully we do have her name, but we don't have too many resources about her. Um, there is a little museum in the hospital on the reservation uh, that does bear her name. And you can learn more about her in person there as well. Thanks so much for sharing that, Leah. I had never heard of her before, and now I want to find out more. What an amazing story. Me too. I had not heard of her either. It's fascinating. Yeah, I was... I'll be honest, I was looking at Elizabeth Blackwell and I stumbled across this list of early women doctors and Susan's name stood out to me. And so I've been trying to learn a little bit more about her. So thank you for putting up with my history nerd rant here about another forgotten woman. Wonderful. It's great. Thanks. Uh, so the second category that we were asked to recommend is other podcasts. Uh, so I'm going to kick us off and recommend The Anthropocene Reviewed, uh, which is a once-a-month podcast from WNYC Studios, where John Green, the wonderful uh, young adult author, uh, quote, reviews aspects of the human experience on a five-star scale. Uh, which, um, if, if it sounds goofy, uh, it kind of is a little bit. Um, but if you know anything about John Green as a person or about his writing style, um, you know that he is an exhaustive researcher um, and a really beautiful writer that talks about um, humanity and doubt and faith and sadness um, in, in a really warm, forgiving, and compassionate way, uh, and he brings that sensibility to this podcast as well, 
Each episode is about 15 or 20 minutes long, and each episode reviews uh, two different aspects of the human experience. Uh, I'm going to recommend two of my favorite episodes. Uh, the first is Googling Strangers and Kentucky Bluegrass. Uh, in the Googling Strangers segment, he talks about um, a period of his life that most of his readers are probably pretty familiar with when he um, was uh, in residency as a hospital chaplain as part of his training to be an Episcopal priest. Um, he, of course, did not become a priest, but the experience he had with the children that he ministered to as a hospital chaplain has really shaped um, his outlook on life and people. And there's a, a just a, a really lovely discourse on doubt and faith in that segment. Um, and my other favorite episode so far is one where he reviews Tetris and the seed potatoes of Leningrad. Um, and he, shockingly, um, in a way that I think only he could do, connects those two concepts and talks a lot about um, human resiliency and the way that we deal with, um, with conflict and tragedy um, and how we can sometimes connect ourselves to other humans uh, in order to go through the saddest parts of our lives. Uh, so the Anthropocene Reviewed, where John Green reviews the human experience on a five-star scale, it is smart and funny and delightful, and I wholeheartedly recommend it. Who wants to go next? I'll go next. Um, I am not a huge podcast listener, um, so I'm not the best recommender, but I do have one that I love that I, I just recently found out about about six months ago, or maybe even less than that, but um, it's Melvin Bragg's BBC podcast called In Our Time, and it's been going on since 1999, but I didn't know it until a friend of mine pointed it out to me, so there's been a lot of rich catching up that I've done kind of picking and choosing of topics. And Melvin Bragg is um, one of these kind of old school guys, very intelligent uh, interviewer, and he just collects scholars, really, for all the different topics and interviews them and lets them talk about, you know, questions related to the topic. And the topics are varied, highly varied. You, anything from Hildegard of Bingen, Gnosticism, Plato's Symposium. They did one on Jane Eyre. They did one on Guernica. And so there's not current news events. There's, you know, it's none of that. It's just let's talk about things that still matter um, and talk about kind of from an academic and, you know, in-depth perspective, but in a way that's also accessible to people who are not experts in that area. They're not afraid of science. And um, it's, it's enlightening to, to listen to that on your way to work. You just feel smarter, you know, right away. Um, but it, it just helps you to go, oh, man, I, I really wanted to think more about that. Now I know how or what kinds of things to look at. So I, I have loved listening to that. It's a great show. He's a wonderful interviewer, too. Yeah, and some of the early ones, he was a little bit, I don't know, aggressive. He's backed it off a little bit, I think, since then. Yeah, it can, it can, be, um, it can be a little aggressive, as you say, in the earlier episodes. Uh, Though I I don't know that I've listened to the very earliest ones, um, but I I particularly loved the Jane Eyre episode that you mentioned. That's a yes, great one. Yes, it's a really good one. 
it gets quality um, people on there to talk to, and they always have wonderful things to say. Great recommendation. Leah, what's your first podcast? My first podcast that I'm going to recommend is, an, like Christina, one that I've stumbled across recently. I'm always on the look for a new podcast. Um, so when I heard about Women Rule, I thought that would be worth a try. It's actually an interview podcast through Politico. Um, it aims to, quote, expand leadership opportunities for women at all levels of their careers, end quote. Um, it's led by Anna Palmer, who's really a fantastic interviewer. Um, so each episode, episode really asks great questions about Sometimes it is current events, sometimes it's current women's issues, but primarily answers questions about how women in leadership attained and maintain their positions, even with all of the challenges that they have met along the way. Um, I'm still catching up on listening to all of these episodes, but my current favorite right now is from the sixth annual Women Rule Summit, uh, which was in D.C., where Anna interviewed Piper Parabo, um, an actress that you might remember from, uh, I believe it's Coyote Ugly, <laughs> um, about how she was introduced to activism and what inspired her to act upon certain opportunities as they arose, uh, primarily recently with uh, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination and uh, the Women's March and uh, things of that nature. That sounds really interesting. I've heard that podcast is good, but I haven't listened to it. it it's a lot of fun. Um, each episode is only about a half hour as well. So it's a pretty nice length to, like if you're driving somewhere, to just tune into a conversation. <laughs> That sounds really cool. I'll definitely check that out. Uh, I guess it's my turn again. Uh, the second podcast I'm going to recommend, as I alluded to earlier, is um, produced in part by the company I work for. Um, it's The Truth from Radiotopia. And The Truth is a storytelling podcast, so it's, it's fiction, um, performed by uh, actors and improv specialists, and the writing is just really, really great. Um, it's all different genres sometimes. It's a comedy, sometimes it's a mystery, sometimes um, it's a social commentary. Um, and the, the episode I'm going to recommend, uh, which is actually a, a four-part um, anthology series, falls into the latter category. Uh, it's called The Off Season, and it's a as I said, four-part mini-series centered around the Me Too movement, uh, and it tells a story of a um, TV news presenter who is removed from his job uh, because of the way he treats women on his staff, um, and then a, a female young upstart reporter who, um, through reasons I will not spoil, um, her path crosses with his and there's a really interesting 
um, dissection of the Me Too movement and its cultural uh, prominence and significance. So uh, the podcast is The Truth from Radiotopia, and that recent series is called The Off Season. Uh, Christina, you're up again. Okay. Well, that's funny. That reminded me of a podcast that I used to listen to whenever I was driving around, the, the one with the short stories, but I just can't think of the name of it, um, Collected Shorts or something like selected that. Selected Shorts? Selected Shorts, yeah. Uh, that's so, really selected Shorts also distributed by us. Okay. That's a that's a wonderful podcast, especially for driving because you have just enough attention you know, for a short story. Um, and some of them are laugh out loud funny because they're performed by, um, you know, actors that you would know, read by actors that you would know. And then, in fact, um, there was a famous, I can't remember his name, who read um, one of Flannery O'Connor's short stories on that program. Do you know who that oh, was, Victoria? I should. He's a comedian. I you get... know, one of these late night personalities. I get emails. Um, part of my job is, is answering listener questions about the things that we um, the things that we put on the air and I get questions about selected shorts, um, mm -hmm. fairly often, which is why I knew exactly what you were talking about. I can't remember. It's somebody, everybody knows his name uh, and I just can't think of his name right now. I'll, you know. uh, I'll maybe look it up while, um, Conan O'Brien, while, like you know? while you keep going. Yeah. Okay. Um, I am cheating a little bit by recommending truth's table, but in truth, it's one of the podcasts that I've still just really enjoyed listening to since we did an episode on Truth's Table uh, back, I guess, a couple of years ago now. Is that right? And uh, it's these three um, African-American women, Akemi Wan, Christina Edmondson, and Michelle Higgins, who talk candidly uh, about their experiences as black women, black Christian women, um, and it's largely designed for black women to listen to. And as a result, as a white woman listening to this, I learned so much um, from these women, hearing them share their experiences, their heart, their interests. And there's just a freshness there that is, uh, is so important. And it, it, it's like being an interloper and in another conversation that I'm dying to learn more about. So I always feel very grateful to hear their perspectives. And I remember when I first, well, doing the episode is the what, you know, keyed me into this podcast, so I'm grateful for that. But that I also, when I heard them talk about the film that I loved, Get Out, that's when I fell in love with them because they're just the way of describing that film was brilliant, funny, and very compelling. And that's just one example among many of, of the podcast and their effectiveness. So, yeah, it's, I mean, I know obviously we've already recommended um, that show, but particularly the two episodes that they do about get out and, uh, and the sunken space in America and, and yes. how, how and where and when the sunken space, uh, sunken place, excuse me, uh, exists is they're they're incredible. Um, also, sub recommendation: if everyone listening to my voice has not seen Get Out, do it right now. Oh my goodness, yes, so good, so good. Leah, you've seen it, right? Oh, definitely. Okay, it's wonderful. Have you guys seen the trailer for uh, Jordan Peele's next horror movie, Us? No, no. I Talk about it. okay. Well, I'm gonna. 
completely reveal how much of a weenie I am uh, to everyone. But the trailer's like a minute and a half long, and I, I still haven't watched the whole thing because I couldn't make it. It was so scary. It's about this, I mean, this is not a spoiler because it shows you in the trailer um, and all the all the advertisements say this, but it's a family on vacation um, and they get stalked by these other people um, that they quickly realize are themselves, like doppelganger versions of themselves, um, and, and, oh they, and they have to try to get away. Uh, and it looks, mm-hmm. like I said, I could not finish the trailer. It looks terrifying. I want to maybe wait until it comes out uh, on DVD or Netflix so I can watch it during the day in my house with all the lights on. Uh, <laughs> but it, it does look uh, it does look amazing. That's so funny because I deliberately tried to find out I, when I go to see a movie, I don't want to know anything about it. So I knew that I wanted to see Get Out, but I went at the end of its run. And when I went to the theater, there was literally no other person in the theater <clears throat> when I watched Get Out. And that was a chilling experience. <laughs> I can't imagine doing it with this particular film, which sounds scarier. It does. Um, but also it's great um, because Peel Peel in an interview was saying, um, this is not a movie about race. It's just a horror movie about a black family because he said he wants to see and make more horror movies that just happen to be about black families. So that's good, too. Very interesting. But I should stop talking because I'm shanghaiing your recommendation. <laughs> I was done. Okay, great. All right. Um, well, my second podcast, it's again, it's another new one to me. Um, it's Stuff Mom Never Told You, uh, hosted by Bridget Todd and Annie Reese. I love uh, that one. Oh, it's so much fun. These are very fun women to listen to. And uh, I love the topics that they tackle as well. Um, They look at current events and historical trends and things that lie underneath the surface or things that you wouldn't automatically recognize as issues that affect us today. Uh, And they pair this information with how listeners can personally address these currents in their own lives and kind of move forward with a plan of action. Um, uh, I think one of the first episodes that I ever listened to that I would probably recommend as a first listen would be The Gendered Chef, which looks at how the profession of chef has become a highly gendered position with female chefs becoming the minority, at least in media representation, if not in reality. Um, So they just are very intelligent with how they do research and look at these issues and present it. Um, I don't know. I just find it very enjoyable. Yeah, I would second that recommendation. It's um, You learn a lot, and it's really fun and funny. Uh, the third part of this episode is just kind of miscellaneous. Other things we wanted to recommend. Um, so they are movies, TV, people we think you should check out. Um, just lots of various things. 
Um, I'm going to wrap us up, so I don't want to go first. Uh, Leah, how about you start? Sure. Um, I am recommending a relatively older movie, the prize winner of Defiance, Ohio, which came out in 2005, as well as a relatively older book, uh, Who Cooked the Last Supper? The Women's History of the World by Rosalind Miles, which was published in 2001 in the U.S. Um, The prize winner of Defiance, Ohio, which stars Julianne Moore and Woody Harrelson, is based on a true story and you can read the book if you don't believe me, of a housewife in the 50s and 60s who enters contests of all kinds to make ends meet for her 10 children and kind of her sloppy, alcoholic husband. Um, I'm not sure really... we needed that description if it's, play, if it's played by Woody Harrelson. Like, I think we were already there. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's he's playing his true role, right? Um, but I do really enjoy this film. It's kind of a snapshot of the, quote, great American housewife, end quote. And this part of that housewife life that isn't always considered or seen in media. Um, and kind of to go along with that, the book that I'm recommending, Who Cooked the Last Supper, is kind of every historian's uh, beginner book for women's history. I say that with a smile. It, it hasn't been around super long, but I would just recommend this for anyone who's interested in women's history. It looks at how behind every great man there is a plethora of women who made his greatness possible. Um, So she looks at how this history is being compiled and kind of intersperses it with some individual women's stories and quotes and um, primary sources. And it's a really fun read while still being very rich in history. Yeah, that's a that's a great book that I read, I guess, in college. Did you say 2001? Yeah, so it didn't reach the U.S. until 2001. It was published in 17 other countries before that, since 1988. Okay. Um, I do remember being assigned it in college um, in a uh, a history class because I remember the professor, who was a man, um, very derisively uh, referred to it as, like, um, Howard Zinn for women, um, which I don't think is even that accurate because I don't think Miles is, is trying to do the kind of... Um, the kind of radical reading that Zen does. So I think that's actually a really lazy description in addition to being sexist. Uh, <laughs> but whatever. Uh, it's a, it's a great book. Um, and I, I really enjoy, like you're saying, the way that she interpolates um, various genres to create this overall argument about um, the way women, um, often shape history from behind the scenes, which seems to be a, a theme of our episode today.
Okay. Um, Christina, you're up. All right. Well, I'm going to go super academic, but I cannot not go this way because I'm just falling in love with Rachel Cusk. And so I want to explain why I want to have the platform that has been given to me at the moment to explain why she is a Canadian born writer who has spent most of her life in the UK. And she's written this trilogy of books. It starts with Outline, and there's a next one is Transit, and then Kudos. And they roughly fall into what has been called autofiction, which would be like My Struggle um, by Man Called Ove, you know, that whole thing. Uh, writers who are writing more biographically, autobiographically, but they're writing novels. So autofiction comes from that sort of almost looking inward navel gazing, but that's not really a description of what Rachel Cusk is doing in these novels. And you have to read them to understand how powerful what she is doing really is. The New York Times said this, spend much time with this novel, referring to the first one, and you'll become convinced she is one of the smartest writers alive. And that's an apt description because what she does is what Henry James says the novelist should do. He says the novelist is that person on whom nothing is lost. And nothing is lost on her as a storyteller. And it's just unbelievable to watch her picking through what seems to be random, unconnected, ordinary events and getting insight that you would not believe from them. So it, it, you, it's hard to describe these novels. You kind of just have to read them. They're that good. Sounds really interesting. Have either of you read any of these books? No, I haven't. I um, I think the only uh, reason I have heard of her is that I've heard you talk about her. Probably so. I haven't heard about her either, but now I know what my next novel is going to be. <laughs> All right. Okay, I guess it's my turn to finish us up. I'm going to recommend... Um, a television show and an author. Uh, first, I'm going to recommend The Kids Are All Right, which is uh, a sitcom currently in its debut season on ABC. Um, it's set in the early 70s in a suburb of California, um, and uh, its subjects are the Clearies, a um, suburban Catholic family like I said, growing up in the 1970s, it's a mom, a dad, and their eight sons, um, ages uh, 20 to, I believe, the baby, who they almost exclusively refer to as the baby, um, who's, I, I think, about six or eight months. And um, I'm always really interested in sitcoms about religious people, because I think that American popular culture in general, and Hollywood specifically, it's just not great about portraying um, religious people, and especially devoutly religious people, with any kind of nuance. Yeah. Um, and and this show, I mean, it is a sitcom, so it's jokey, and there are occasionally some um, some broad jokes. Um, there are you know church bingo ladies who gossip about people and that's basically their only characterization um but there's also some really heartfelt exploration of why these people um raise their family the way they do why their faith um leads them to order their lives the way they order their lives 
particularly a couple of recent episodes, which uh, have dealt with one of the older boys in the family um, trying to decide whether or not to purchase condoms with his girlfriend. Um, and the most recent episode I watched is about um, the uh, the mother and father think that they're expecting another baby, and then when they find out um, that she's not pregnant and it's actually just an ovarian cyst, they are relieved to not be having another baby, and then they kind of have this discussion about, like, well, is that bad? Like, we're Catholic and we're told to welcome these children that God gives us, and, you know, the church is against birth control, and they have a really honest um discussion that felt to me like the kind of discussions married men and women have about the decisions that they make. Uh, so uh, I would recommend that if you're looking for uh, a new sitcom, and especially a sitcom that you can watch with your children. Um, it is is very, uh, very clean and very family friendly as well. Isn't it amazing how rare it is to actually get TV that describes or depicts uh, conversations between men and women that they're likely to actually have. Yes. That's what struck me about Friday Night Lights. It, it, the oh, love that it, show. It, yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, they actually gave you an insight into a kind of a conversation that married women, men and women have, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and the kids are all right is not as, uh, as sort of true to life um, as uh, the relationship between the Taylors um, because it is a sitcom and it's mm -hmm. it's set in the 70s so the dad can sometimes I think if if I have a criticism of this show my biggest criticism is um, it does occasionally fall into this sort of completely helpless sitcom dad um, uh -huh. trope uh, there's even a scene where he like can't figure out how to change the baby's diaper which is stupid like sir you have eight children like you have changed a lot of diapers even that's if it's right. the 70s like there are just only so many people you know that's right uh, so it, it's not perfect um, but I, I do think you should give it a shot especially if you're looking for um, TV that, that tries to talk about religion in interesting ways my last recommendation is an author, um, D.L. Mayfield, who lives and works in Portland with resettled refugees and wrote a book about her experiences. Um, she thought she was going to be a missionary, but that didn't work out super well for her. Um, very humorous book called Assimilate or Go Home, Notes from a Failed Missionary on Rediscovering Faith. Um, and I'm recommending uh, her book and her work because I actually had the chance to meet her a few months ago when she came to speak at my husband's college. Um, and she talked to us about her work with refugees in Portland and about um, being a good neighbor. And one of the things that she really focused on is the idea of the American dream and the fact that the American dream and the values that it puts forth for us are, when you get down to it, really kind of antithetical to the way that Jesus tells us in the Gospels to, to live our lives and the emphasis he puts on um, being a good neighbor and what it means. She talked a lot about the parable of the Good Samaritan and, um, and what we owe to each other as people. Uh, so I would recommend um, reading her blog, which is also great, 
um, she talking about sitcoms. Uh, she's also, as I am, a really big fan of The Good Place, uh, and she does recaps and reviews of The Good Place for Christ and Popular Culture. Those are also really great, and check those out too, especially if you're a Good Place fan. I second rec that recommendation. Very good recommendation. Okay. Um, I guess that wraps up our New Year's All Recommendations extravaganza. Thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a topic or a reading recommendation for a future show, or if you just want to say hi, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page and check out show notes from this and other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison, and Ellen Peterson is our intern. For Christina Bieber-Lake and Leah Henning, I'm Victoria Reynolds-Farmer. Tune in in two weeks when we will have an episode on the Shaw Brothers 1972 film The Fourteen Amazons. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love. <laughs>